Hey, thanks everyone for your welcome. Uh, we did find a place to park the dog sled at the hotel. Uh, that was an unusual request, but uh, they were extremely helpful. Over the last year, it's been a tremendous joy to get to know your executive pastor, Ron Tobias, your search team led by the remarkable Dana Nicewander. Get to know, yeah, there was a shout out there for Dana. And uh, great. <laughs> when we all grow up, we want to be like Dana. <laughs> And, and uh, the opportunity to get to know your session members and your diaconate and the great community of Spanish River School and your counseling center and your student ministries, your children's ministries. What a remarkable work God's given you to do in this city and around the world. And I'm so thankful for you. The, 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 the church of Jesus is thankful for Spanish River Church and the work that God has given you to do here and around the world. So it's a great privilege for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's the first time I've ever preached at Spanish River, and whether or not it's the only time I ever preach at Spanish River is something that is in your hands. Because you're actually being asked to enter into a process of discernment about whether or not God has called us together into a partnership in the gospel, in the promise that God has made known through the prophets across the ages and fulfilled in Jesus to bring salvation to the whole world. And that's something you and I have the opportunity, perhaps in God's good grace, to labor together in. And that's a decision that you have to make. And it's an unusual kind of decision, which makes today a kind of unusual sort of message. I, in some way, have to offer an introduction to you. Who am I? We have to talk about the, the work that God's called us to do. And we have to talk about the message that God has entrusted to us and brought to the world. And so that's a little bit of an unusual message. And in doing that, just edify the church and build up the church and offer Jesus to the world in that one little space of time in that message. But thankfully, we are not bereft of an example of someone in the New Testament saying, I would long to be with you, but we don't know each other well. And Here's the mission I'm on, and I'd love us to partner together on this, and here's the message I've got, and I'd like to at least get that across to you somehow. In around 53 AD, Paul was taking a few months break in Corinth, a beautiful ancient city in Greece, and he was in the home of a wealthy patron of the congregation of that city, a man named Gaius. And while he was there, his head was full of plans and dreams. He was thinking about where he could go with the gospel next to the ends of the earth. He had an awesome responsibility to get to Jerusalem with funds that had been raised for the relief of the poor that were there. But he wanted to get over to Rome, and he knew he just couldn't go at that time, but he wanted to introduce himself. He wanted them to understand his message. He wanted to tell them, I'm going to get there, and when I get there, we can be together in this mission but knowing there was going to be some delay in that, he turned to Gaius and he said, I got to send a letter over to that church. Could you, um, could you have one of your scribes come in? And Gaius said, Tertius, come over here. Grab your, uh, grab your parchments, grab your pens, get on over here. Paul's got something he needs you to write down. And Paul turned to Tertius and he said, I want you to write this. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and you can follow along with the rest of it in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read those verses together that Paul wrote that morning in Corinth 
to the people in Rome to introduce himself, the minister, to introduce them and call them into a mission of mutual partnership in a message he had for the whole world called the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may be, and catch this, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, and that is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Lord. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to have these words penned, write them in the tablets of our heart, and by them renew our minds, that we may walk in your ways through Jesus our Lord. Amen. In this text, Paul takes a moment to introduce to these people he's, for the most part, never met something about himself. He does that in verse 1. He introduces to them what it means for him to be a minister of the gospel. And then he goes on to talk to them about the mission that they're called together into. And finally, he talks to them about the message that they're bringing to the whole world. Let's break it out that way this morning, shall we? The minister, the mission, and the message. So here's the minister. Paul, because ancient letters always started with a, a person signing in, not just signing at the end. Paul, he says, and what's the very first thing he says about himself? A bondservant. Paulus, bondservant, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, concerning his son, who he calls the descendant of David according to the flesh, but declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. In this verse, Paul highlights a particular word, called, called of God. Now that calling is not his alone. He says to this church in Rome, you too are the called of Jesus Christ. 
We are called from death into life. We've been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, not because we reached down and raised ourselves up from the dead, but because God in his mercy and grace, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Jesus. It's what he has done. But then he says, you're called to be saints. So called from death to life and called to a new kind of living, a holy life that only God can give. So this calling issue is something that is with all Christians. But Paul identifies a particular vocational aspect of this in his own life, that he is called as a servant and sent by God for the strengthening of the church and the spread, the proclamation of the message of Jesus in all the world. He says, I'm a servant and I'm sent. It's important to remember that a minister of the gospel is not an employee of the church, he's the bond slave of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, the minister of the gospel belongs to Jesus. Well, we all belong to Jesus by redemption and by creation. We are his people. But ministers are taken hold of and set apart. It's a very interesting word that Paul uses there. I'm set apart for the gospel. You know that before Paul was an apostle and a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a zealous opponent of the Christian faith. He was one of the leading theologians of his day. There were three great universities in that ancient world, great learning centers in Athens and in Alexandria in Egypt and in Tarsus. They were the Harvard and Yale and Princeton of their day. And Paul was at Tarsus. And I'm not sure if that's Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. But then he did postgraduate work in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul had the equivalent of roughly two PhDs in his mid-20s, and he was absolutely committed to the demolition of this strange, crazy Christian idea. But as he was pursuing that end, putting an end to the gospel, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and graciously knocked him to his knees. And he looked up, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And blinded graciously, Paul was brought to the light of life. He moved from being Saul the Pharisee persecutor to being Paul the sent messenger of Jesus. And what's interesting there is that word that he uses, set apart for the gospel, is the verb form of a noun that is translated a Pharisee. He went from being a Pharisee of the law, a legalist opposing the gospel, to being Phariseed, set apart for the gracious message of Jesus that liberates us from death. He was set apart for the gospel. What is the work that a minister is called to do? Well, a minister is a servant of Jesus, and a minister is set apart for the gospel. This is the message that we and the church must be known for. Sadly, so often, the church is not known for this message. But we have to recapture that day, don't we? So that when people think of the church, we think, oh, yes, those people who are proclaiming by word and deed and sign and wonder the goodness of Jesus in all the world. And when the church thinks of their ministers, they think, oh, those people whose hearts and minds are thrilled with and possessed by the truth of the gospel. And when you poke them, they bleed gospel ah, for everyone. 
so that life can come to everyone who hears that message. He was a man who was set apart for the gospel. When I was a little boy, about eight years old, I was sitting in my Lutheran church. I was baptized, catechized, and confirmed as a good Lutheran kid. And um, I was listening to my evangelical Lutheran pastor preach the gospel, and he was a great gospel preacher. He'd been a missionary for many years in Africa and then come back and planted a church there in a bean field in Indiana. And that's where I grew up, you know, next to a bean field in Indiana, right? And I, I listened to him preach, and I felt that God had called me to preach the gospel as well. And I couldn't explain what that was like. I didn't really know much. I've been baptized, catechized. I'm, my, my journey is faith-seeking understanding. If, if you'd have asked me when I was five years old, do you believe in the virgin birth? I'd have said yes, because I said so every Sunday. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We said it every Sunday. So if somebody said to me, you believe in the virgin birth? I'd have said yes. And if you'd have said to me, what's a virgin? I'd have said, well, I don't know. And if I'd asked my dad, what's a virgin? He'd have said, ask your mother. <laughs> we have things we believe, but we don't fully understand. And so we grow into them. And my understanding of what ministry was sure wasn't mature at age eight, but I sensed something stirring in my heart. And I turned to that minister after church and I was in his office and I said, pastor, I believe God wants me to do what you do somehow. And he looked at me and he said, are you really sure? And I said, well, I think so. And he said, will you go wherever he tells you to go? And I said, I'll go wherever he tells me to go. And he laid his big Lutheran hand on me and he said, Lord, send him wherever you want him to go. I didn't know that was going to be Boca. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I had visions of other bean fields. I didn't know it would be Oxford and London and Kentucky and in the bluegrass and Austin, Texas and, and, and beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. And now this beautiful place here, perhaps. But it's a mission that we're on and we're set apart for the gospel. But that's why Paul goes on to tell him about the mission, doesn't he? And he says, you and I are called into this mutual partnership for the gospel. He said, look what's ahead of us. He says, this gospel I've been given concerning God's son, Jesus Christ, descendant of David, son of God. He said, is this to me, he says, this grace was given to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations. And that includes you, you who are in Rome. There is in this mission, which is global, an emphasis as well on the local. The mission is something into which all of us are called, and it has both a global and a local dimension to it. It's vital for us to get that. We cannot create a division between the global and the local. We have to have both of those flowing together in the river of life that flows from God's throne. When you think about the world and how much it's changing right now and what's going on in the world, what a great privilege God has given us to live now and bring the gospel to the world. You know, 42% of the world's population today is under the age of 25. We have this tremendous next generation which is ahead of us. The median age of the whole world is 28. The median Christian in the world today the median Christian in the world today is not male, but female. She is not white. She is brown or black. She does not live in North America or Europe. She lives in Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa or South America. And she is willing to suffer 
And more often than not, she doesn't have internet access. She doesn't have hill songs to sing along to. She hasn't read your blog or mine. No one reads my blog, so that doesn't matter. She doesn't care whether or not something that is being said up here is having some ramification about some theological controversy in any city in North America. She cares about whether or not she can get the good news of Jesus to the people in her village and the people in the next village, and she just goes on planting churches everywhere she goes. And she's not a Presbyterian, she's probably a Pentecostal as well. Now that'll make some of you just this side of nervous. But that's okay. That's okay. Because while I'm, a, I'm an evangelical Christian and, 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 and I'm a Presbyterian, and in some cases, for some of you who are Presbyterians, that may be a lowercase p. That's okay. But it's very important that we know we're seeking first the kingdom. We fly the flag of Jesus first. And so we're together with the whole body of Christ and its mission in the world. But what about right here? What about closer to home? Between 2006 and 2016, the suicide rate among children ages 10 to 17 rose in the United States by 70%. Did you know that the average length of life in the United States has gone down five successive years? And that's before COVID. The opioid crisis is taking lives left, right, and center. There are tremendous, tremendous attacks on the rising generation that is before us. Many of this rising generation are abandoning the faith. Between 69 to 80% of evangelicals in their 20 leave the faith. 260,000 a year, 715 by the end of today. Who are in their 20s, who woke up this morning saying, I'm an evangelical, will by the end of the day say, I can't anymore call myself an evangelical. This means that we not only have to be involved in the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, we have a mission right here in our hometown. Every pastor has to wake up in his home city as a missionary pastor. Because there are broken hearts and shattered hearts. There are shattered homes and people who are longing to understand the truth of the gospel uncluttered by a commercialized and politicized and, 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 and anesthetized church that is dying in its sleep. But a church which is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and dedicated to bringing the message of Jesus to everyone they know everywhere they go. The mission is not simply over there. The mission is right where we live. Why would we think that God would be pleased for us to spend thousands to go across the world to talk to someone who, if they lived across the street from us, we wouldn't even be willing to walk down the sidewalk to invite to dinner? My friends, God has called us to be missionaries right where we live because the brokenness is all around us. My friends, this is a mission that is not only, he says, for the obedience of faith in all nations, because we have to be involved in church planting in all nations. we got to find apostolic leaders who will plant churches that plant churches. And we got to support them. And we've got to do that right here at home. But we also have to understand what it means for each of us to bring the good news of Jesus right to our neighbors. To love our neighbors. And as Calvin said, that starts with our nearest neighbors. We have a, a culture which is increasingly hostile. A church which is increasingly morbid. And we have to understand that many people in their leaving are not just leaving, but they're leaving angry. Why? 
Well, sometimes they've never met the Lord. Sometimes they have met the Lord and they're determined to be on the mission and they're frustrated by being in a place that isn't. And sometimes they've been wounded and hurt. And the church has to be a healing place where questions can be asked and honest answers can be given. A church where a new apologetic is available to everyone who is a true seeker, who says, I really want to know, and I've got questions and some of them are hard. And we don't just say, pray about it. We say, let's sit and talk about it. My friends, you and I are called then in the middle of this message, this mission to bring the message of Jesus Christ to all. Paul outlines that, that message then in verse 15, 16, and 17. Verse 15, follow along. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's writing to Christians. Don't miss this. I want to preach the gospel to you who are already believers. Don't miss that. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul wants to come to Rome to preach the gospel. And you go, well, that's good because surely Rome in Paul's day was filled with rank unbelief, and it was. But notice that he not only wants to preach the gospel to those in Rome who are not yet believers, he says to those who already believe, I want to preach the gospel to you. See, sometimes people think the gospel is a message that's exclusively for unbelievers. It's kind of the ABCs of Christianity. And now that we've covered the ABCs, could we please get to the, you know, the, the deep stuff? Could we tuck into Revelation, please, and do Scarlet Harlots and what the number is? And could we get into that, please? I want some beasties. You know, there's nothing deeper than the gospel. It's so astonishing that Peter writes later that angels stare at it in wonder. Angels just, who look on the face of God, look at the gospel and go, I got to spend some time on that. Paul is eager to preach the gospel because in it something is made known, a gift, a gift called righteousness. In it, the righteousness of God. That word of means that it's from God, just like it's the gospel of God. Back there in verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. It means it's a message that comes from him. It's the righteousness of God. It doesn't mean simply God's own righteousness. It means the righteousness which God gives. Paul had pursued a life of righteousness according to the law, but he couldn't deal with the covetousness in his own heart. It condemned him every day. It was a goad poking at him, he said later. He longed for liberty from that, and he found it on the Damascus Road that day as Jesus forgave him and freed him from everything the law could never liberate him from. And he knew two, true righteousness, a gift. Righteousness, a gift from God, right standing with God. Not something he achieved, but a gift he received. You and I are so bent on creating resumes of our greatness to gain access that we easily transfer that mode of operation over into our faith we build up our resume to get into the right university we build up our cv to fill out that job application and we hope we are the person that is chosen 
we still, even now, having believed in Jesus, drift back over into, but Lord, but Lord, look at everything I've done. Why aren't you treating me better? Here are all the things I've done. But Paul said, my only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. My only boast is in the blood of the Savior. That and that alone. Because righteousness, right standing with God, is something which is given to us mercifully. It's undeserved. It's simply given to us. And we need to keep hearing that. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, as Christians, we drift over into shame. We wake up every morning knowing our interior temptations. We know our disordered desires, our idolatrous loves. And when we look at them, honestly, we may even ask ourselves, am I really a Christian? Has Jesus actually changed my heart? I mean, my goodness, look at, look at what a mess I am. And so we drift over into shame, and we need to hear again the message, you're the beloved of God. You are called saints. You are the holy people of God, not because of anything you have done, but because of everything Jesus did, and what he did is enough. But here's another thing. At the other end of the spectrum, we drift over into pride, and we think we're all that. We think, look what we've done, and we begin to boast, and we lose humility. We forget what broken people we are, and that every day until we die, we will have to come face to face with the reality that it is grace from first to last that saves us that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved, that it is the gospel that is continually working in us to perfect what God started in us, that there are no perfect parents, there are no perfect children, there are no perfect single lives, and I got news for you today, guys, there are no perfect pastors. You can't hire one, and I'm sure not one, and I've got even wilder news for you this morning. When you get to heaven, no pastors are going to be there. Now, for some of you, that's no great shock. <laughs> what do I mean? Well, here's what I mean. In this kingdom, all the shepherds are sheep. And so I stand before you today as a sinner. And if they put me in the hospital this afternoon and my life passed before me and they said, you may not make it past dinner, the last thing I'd say is, Lord, I'm a preacher. Lord, did I not travel these many miles? Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? That's a ticket straight to hell, and you don't even have to stop in Atlanta to make that trip. <laughs> no, you'd have to sit, lay there. I'd have to lay there and say, I'm a sinner. I need the cross. I need to see the Lamb of God. Because when the Lamb is presented before the priest, the priest does not inspect the person who brought the Lamb. He inspects the Lamb. And the Lamb is perfect. And that makes the worshiper accepted. I'm accepted today in heaven, not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus' perfection. And his perfection, Paul says, is counted to us. What an astonishing message. And it changes us. And it changes our attitude towards everybody. Let me close with this. This last week, many of my friends were assaulted by a humanitarian catastrophe of epic proportions, this devastating winter storm. It came down on the great state of Texas. And in Austin, which was our home for a good long time, one of my fellow pastors there, we planted him out from the church that we served. Uh, his name's Greg Ward. 
Greg is in Cedar Park. And uh, my goodness, his son works in a grocery store there. It's a big Texas chain called H-E-B. And if you've ever been in Texas, you know H-E-B. And if you don't know what H-E-B is, you need to know what H-E-B is. But we'll get to that some other time. Great, great, huge, beautiful place. And while that store was filled with shoppers getting supplies that were needed as that storm came in, the power went out. All the people with their debit cards and their credit cards, they couldn't check out. And Greg's son told him when he got home, and this story's gone viral, he said they, they came up with their carts. <laughs> they came up with their carts. And the people and the cashiers, at the instruction of the managers of the store, just waved them through. Just waved them through. No charge. No charge. Just take everything you need and keep going. Just keep going. People began to weep. Because they were given something that they didn't have to pay for, and they, they actually could not pay for it couldn't happen. It was a transaction that could not occur. But Greg's son said something really interesting began to happen. He said as people came in the store, they were grumpy, they were angry, they were fearful. But he said as they left the store, having received this gift, they began to help each other. People carrying other people's bags. An elderly woman fell down and people went over and helped her, helped her back up and they began to carry her bags. People began to help people push their cars out of the ice. He said it changed the attitudes they all had to each other because a change had happened in their hearts because a gift had been given to them. My friends, the most remarkable gift has been given to us in Jesus Christ that not only has brought us righteousness with God, but changes our hearts towards each other. And we exist in this parking lot of a world to see the people who are hurting and to go to them, to move towards them, not away from them, with the love which has brought us life. Let's love Boca to life. Not with our love, but the perfect love that casts out fear. The love of Jesus Christ that looked at a man who hated him, who was shaking his fist at him and said, I'll, I'll take him and make him an apostle. Watch this. You know what Jesus says to Spanish River Church this morning? Watch this. Watch what I do. Let me pray. Gracious Father, for those who are listening online, for those who are gathered here, for any who need to know that they're free from shame or who are stuck in pride and need to humble themselves, help us to all right now fall before you, confess our need for the Savior, change us and by us, set apart for the gospel, on the mission that you have given, bring the message of your saving grace to everyone we know everywhere we go. For the sake of your name, amen and amen.